You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Alex Coffey. Uh, I serve as our communications associate on staff, and I also serve with our preschool ministry. Uh, this morning, we're going to be reading out of Genesis 18, 16 through 33. So if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. Uh, and if you don't, there's one in the seat back in front of you, and that's our gift to you. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alex. Good morning, church. Great to see all of you. My name is Brady Goodwin. I have the the joy of serving as one of the pastors here and the privilege of opening God's word with you this morning. And uh, as you have heard us read, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis today. And we are in the midst of a couple of stories in Genesis 18 uh, that are honestly a bit unusual. Last week, if you'll remember, we saw how the Lord came to Abraham and Sarah by the oaks at Mamre, and how God promised that Sarah, despite her old age, would indeed bear a son and how Sarah, both from a place of unbelief, but also based upon her experiences in life, how she questioned the promise of God, and how that interchange and what it means for us informs the way we regard our own life and what God will or won't do in our circumstances. And our discussion of that passage hinged on a question that God asked in the narrative, is anything too hard for the Lord? And in our passage today, there is a different question that is at the heart of the story. And it's found at the conclusion of verse 25. 
Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Where the question in the first half of Genesis 18 had to do with the fate of one person within God's story of redemption, of Sarah, and the promise of offspring that was foretold in the preceding chapters. Here, the question relates to a people, the city of Sodom, and how God's plan is to be understood relative to them. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And as we will see today, this question is important not just for how we understand the story, but how we understand God's work today. So as we think about this question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We're going to look at it through three lenses. The first lens is through uh, seeing the intercession of Abraham. This is the raw data of the story, what's happening in the narrative itself as Abraham stands and intercedes for Sodom. The second is thinking through the righteousness of God. This is the theological dimension, how we make sense of what's happening in this text from the standpoint of salvation history. And then third, how we see the promise of the gospel in the practical way we think of this text, how we consider what's happening in this story and its impact on our lives as Christians in our own city. So we'll be looking at the intercession of Abraham, the righteousness of God, and the promise of the gospel. So first, the intercession of Abraham. Verse 16 begins as a continuation of the narrative unit that came before. We saw the three men appear to Abraham and Sarah, and now we see the men set out from there where they were at Mamre. In the first half of Genesis 18, we saw the interchange between Abraham, Sarah, and the Lord following her internal laughter at the face of God's promise. And the whole scene is occurring through what's known as a theophany or an appearance of God uh, in a way that his people can comprehend and understand it. And so God has appeared in human form, accompanied by two others, and these three men, the theophany of God himself, as well as who we will learn are angels in Genesis 19, they begin to leave. And we see that they looked down toward Sodom. They're with Abraham, who, like the good host that he is, is accompanying them to see them off. Now, Sodom as a city has been mentioned a few times in Genesis before this point in the text. The first time is in Genesis 10, where it is mentioned along with its neighbor, Gomorrah, in the description of the table of nations that proceeded following the disruption of human language at Babel in Genesis 11. In Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot have separated after they left Egypt, and we learn that Lot has settled in the land of Sodom, which was located in this verdant plain near the Jordan River. But in that same passage, we see two ominous notes about Sodom, that the valley where it sat, green as it was, was in, the, in this condition before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And that, quote, the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord, end quote. We also see Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned during the military conflict of Genesis 14. But now in chapter 18, the narrative returns. And we learn very quickly that we are about to see the events that lead to Sodom's destruction. 
This is made clear in verses 17 through 19. We see God engage in a kind of inner dialogue. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There's three things happening in this inner dialogue. First, as the commentator Alan Ross will say it, Abraham was going to be a blessing to the nations. So an account should be given to him when one nation was to be removed from that opportunity. In other words, if Abraham was to be the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, he has an interest in what happens with the nations. So we see Abraham here functioning for the first time as a representative of the nation, seeing that their fate is to be tied up with his. Second, there is a kind of self-affirmation that's happening here relative to God's plans. God cannot lie. And just as he promised to Abraham to bless all nations through him, here he is reiterating that plan in his own inner conversation, which serves to give us confidence that if God has said it, he will do it. He has said it to Abraham, he has said it to himself, and we can rest knowing that those proclamations depend upon his very nature and character. And third, notice how God refers to Abraham in verse 19. He says, for I have chosen him. Abraham is the recipient of God's unconditional electing love. His status in the narrative has not come about because of his righteousness through his actions, but because of God's sovereign choosing. As we've seen in previous weeks, God has entered into covenant with Abraham. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And as a result, he's brought into the divine counsel as the beneficiary of the covenant, as the friend of God that he is. And all this by faith. Abraham's nearness to God as a result in this narrative is going to become especially important in just a moment. But in verses 20 and 21, God's inner dialogue moves from inward consideration to outward declaration where he says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not... I will know. Notice the word outcry. That is very important. It has to do with the cry of those impacted by the sin of those in these cities. We don't yet know what the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah are guilty of, only that the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord, as stated in Genesis 13, 13. Whatever it is, it is enough that the cries of those harmed by their actions have come to the Lord. It is a cry of the vulnerable, of the weak, of the oppressed. It is a cry to which God promises to respond in view of his justice and his mercy. So in these first few verses, we see God consider his response to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, by view of God's covenant with him, is included in the deliberation. 
Now, starting in verse 22, we see Abraham's contribution. Verse 22, two of the three men who we will see, as we mentioned, are angels. They depart and begin to head down to Sodom, but Abraham is left standing before the Lord. In verse 23, the text says that Abraham drew near or approached, depending on your translation. This is priestly language. It is used in the Old Testament mostly to refer to priests as they approach God to offer intercession on behalf of others. And so Abraham then is taking the place of an intercessor. He's standing before God to make an appeal on behalf of one of the nations who stood to be blessed because of him. Now, we are familiar most likely with this story because of the progression and the repetition in Abraham's question. He asks, will you not spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous? And God says, yes, I will if 50 are there. But then Abraham says, okay, what about 45? 40? How about 30? What about 20 or 10? To which every time God replies, I will spare them. But the real questions underneath that Abraham is asking They're the questions that so many of us ask when we think about God's judgment for sin and how that judgment is expressed in relation to the world. And those are the questions found in verse 23 and 25. They're bookends. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? There is something significant happening here. Back in verse 20 and 21, we have God purposing to ask to act in the interest of the vulnerable, to display his mercy by bringing judgment against sin. But here in verses 23 through 33, we have Abraham appealing to God so that the righteous would not be swept away with the wicked. God is acting in view of his justice. Abraham appeals to his mercy. The commentator, Victor Hamilton, will say it in this way. Abraham is concerned with the judge of all the earth, but God is concerned with the nations of the earth. Abraham finds himself involved with the affairs and destiny of a people who geographically are among the nations of the earth. And for the first time, one of the nations of the earth, the Sodomites, is blessed because of Abraham. To be blessed in this context means to have one who intercedes before God regarding one's destiny, to have one who makes intercession for the transgressor. Notice what Hamilton has said. To be blessed as all nations were to be through Abraham came through intercession. Abraham then becomes a source of blessing by view of his priestly work. He stands before God to say, yes, bring justice for sin, but do not forget your mercy. Abraham is an intercessor in view of God's mercy. And God agrees. He will not destroy the city for the sake of the righteous. And so we see here the intercession of Abraham. But that brings us to the second point. Abraham is an intercessor, but how are we to make sense of this text when we consider it from the standpoint of salvation history. And to get to this understanding, we have to have a clear picture of the righteousness of God. 
Back in 2019, an author named Julia Shears wrote an op-ed in the New York Times titled, Raising Children in a World Without Sin. In her article, she describes her own religious upbringing and the harm that came to her as the result of a hyper-realized view of sin and righteousness that the community held. For her and her community, sin was not the result of the evil inside a person's heart and how that radiates out into our lives, but rather merely any deviation from the cultural norms of the people. Because she violated such standards in her youth, she was sent to a boarding school where those in authority sought to force compliance of a particular understanding of morality. But it was not a standard that focused on the heart and one's faith before God, but rather conformity to external standards alone. So years later, in an attempt to protect her own children from the same fate, she resolved to raise them without any concept of sin. Instead, they were taught that what is most important is to do right in this world, since this world is all there is, and to live in keeping with values that promoted the greatest good for people, however variously this may be defined. A few years earlier, back in 2011, there was a well-known pastor named Rob Bell who published a book called Love Wins. Bell's book was massively controversial because in it, he articulated a modern version of an unorthodox theological position known as universalism. The belief that in the end, all people will be saved regardless of whether or not they have believed upon Christ for salvation in this life. His basic contention was that in the end, ultimately, God's justice and wrath for sin would not be poured out because whether in this life or in the life to come, people could see God's love and respond to the offer of Jesus Christ for salvation. For Bell, sin was more like an inconvenience that would one day be overcome rather than a barrier between humans and God. God's love then was more powerful and his love would win out in the end. And though Bell's book was controversial, it was also hugely popular with endorsements from some very beloved figures in the evangelical world, largely because it charted what seemed to be a third way, easing the tension between God's judgment for sin and the eternality of hell. However, one reviewer of Bell's book offered this warning. Bad theology often comes under the guise of familiar language. For Shears in the New York op-ed, her reaction was against a concept of sin that was more cultural than truly spiritual. So when it was compared against a biblical point of view, the language was the same, but the definitions differed. For Bell and Love Wins, his reaction is against the idea of justice as something being expressed upon people unfairly or in opposition to God's character. God's love is the main thing and we will all benefit from it in the end. Both authors, and not to pick on them, just representing their viewpoints, they articulate two common errors that we are at risk of believing as well. On the one hand, it can be easy for us to see sin as merely culturally conditioned. Sin is what people believe is wrong or unacceptable, what we are taught to believe 
This is how our modern, secular, evolutionary culture, if they accept a doctrine of sin at all, would explain the notion of human sinfulness. But it's also at the heart of the shifting standards that exist in American Christianity as well, whether related to doctrine, sexuality, politics, or social advancement. On the other hand, it can be tempting for us to elevate certain of God's attributes against another under the, under the belief that they are somehow opposed to each other. In the case of Rob Bell and Love Wins, God's love is pitted against God's justice with only his love standing in the end. And this too is, of course, the way our society views human existence. It doesn't really matter how we live or believe in this life because in the end, it will all turn out okay. Whether or not we are religious believers in general or followers of Christ in particular. But the Bible teaches something different. Contrary to Shears in the New York op-ed, Sin is not merely a cultural context, construct. It is a real violation against a real God in response to a real standard of righteousness. Sin is real because righteousness is real. As soon as you have conceived of a just standard, the way things should be, you have articulated a definition of sin, the way things are not supposed to be. And even though we may struggle with the implications of such a definition according to Scripture, it doesn't mean that we then have the power or authority to do away with it. And contrary to Bell, God's justice is not opposed to God's love, but rather is one of the key ways his love is expressed. You cannot have the mercy of God without the justice of God, for if there is no justice, there is no mercy. God cannot be compassionate on sinners without rightly expressing his justice against sin. Just as in a human court, a sentence must be handed down for justice to be achieved on behalf of the innocent, so too in the heavenly places is the same reality true. So taking this understanding then of the righteousness of God, we need to look back at what's happening in our text at Genesis 18, 16 through 33. One of the ways that folks have struggled in reading this passage, whether it's commentators or lay people alike, is in the interchange between Abraham and the Lord. Some would say Abraham is offering up an argument against God's justice, as if his justice is at risk of wrongly being meted out against the righteous. The assumption being that because Lot and his family are in Sodom, they must be the righteous that Abraham is referencing. But as we will learn next week, Lot is not exactly the righteous example that some would make him to be. Instead, it's quite the opposite. And so that can't be the case. But others have suggested that perhaps Abraham is holding open the possibility that there are other innocents in the city that would otherwise be unfairly affected by God's justice. But to hold this view is to say that it is possible for a person to truly be righteous based upon their actions. And we know from human experience, we know from the example of Sodom, Lot included, and the pronouncements throughout the rest of the scriptures, that this is not the case either. No, the situation is more like what we read in Psalm 14 
verses two and three. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So what then do we make of the exchange between Abraham and the Lord in our text? I'd like to suggest two ways for us to understand the theological significance of what we are discussing. The first is that this passage is designed to highlight the true nature of God's righteousness. Had there been someone, or at least 10 people in Sodom who were righteous, the entire city would have been spared. But there wasn't. Only Abraham was considered righteous before God's eyes, and that was by the nature of God's covenant with him and Abraham's justifying faith, not his actions. And had there been covenant believers of Yahweh in Sodom, perhaps the situation would have been different. But either way, the standing of such a person wasn't on the basis of their righteous living because they weren't righteous nor was it on the basis of God's covenant because they didn't believe. Even Lot, who was spared, didn't receive this outcome on the basis of righteousness because otherwise the city would have been spared and it was destroyed despite his preservation. Thus God would prove himself just and would not be guilty of exercising his wrath apart from where it was warranted. But second, this text is meant to create in us an expectation. Abraham stood as a priest on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but his righteousness, true as it was, still couldn't save the people of the city. A greater priest was needed. A priest who could stand as the righteous through whom the unrighteous could be redeemed. And so that expectation of a savior who would fulfill the role that Abraham began. That brings us to our third point. How the promise of the gospel answers the need that surfaces in this passage. So we've looked at the intercession of Abraham and we've considered the righteousness of God and now the promise of the gospel. So I've lived in Dallas for close to 20 years. I have been a believer in Jesus for 25 years. And during these years, there are several truths that have become apparent as I consider my life in Christ, as well as my place in DFW. First, I have been saved by sheer grace alone. The longer that I walk with Jesus, the more convinced I am of the impulse within me to live independent of God. Had you met me in those years before Christ or even early on in my relationship with God, and even now, if I'm left on my own long enough, what you will find is someone who is proud, arrogant, selfish, and uninterested in anyone's needs or desires. It is only because of the righteous life of Jesus, his death for me and his resurrection, that I could ever know a life different from what I knew before God awakened my heart to the hope of the gospel. It is only because of God's irresistible grace that such power could be known in my life. Second, 
as a recipient of Christ's grace. I and we who are followers of Jesus are stewards of the greatest news the world has ever known. It is a news that the apostle Peter articulates in a very relevant way in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It is the power of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Third, of the roughly 30 million people that live in Texas, close to 8 million of them live in DFW. So take that, Houston. (laughs) And also, contra Houston, 1,400 people move to North Texas every week. But of those millions who are here, roughly two of every three are strangers to the promise of God. They do not know the hope that can be found in Christ, and they remain dead in their sins. They are deeply loved by God, but they are without the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. They are subject to God's just judgment for sin, having the knowledge of God's power and nature impressed upon their hearts, but suppressing that knowledge through unrighteousness and unbelief. But in God's kindness, it is his kindness that there are hundreds, if not thousands of gospel preaching churches in our area, all of which provide a place where men and women can encounter the grace of Jesus through the proclamation of God's world. The same cannot be said for the rest of the world. But here at least in DFW, there is no shortage of opportunities for people to hear the gospel and to believe upon Christ. And yet, despite those reflections, as I, as, I, as I have considered this text and what it shows us about the intercession of Abraham, about the righteousness of God and about the need for a savior, I have been struck by just how quickly I can ignore those truths that I just mentioned. For one, I am so quickly blinded to the spiritual needs that exist in our city. In our text, the outcry against Sodom's sin rose up to God in light of the suffering of those affected by it. Abraham rose up to intercede on behalf of the people in light of the righteousness of God. And while the specifics of our situation today are different in many ways, in many ways, they are the same. There is an outcry that rises before God because of injustice in our city. Injustice that has spiritual roots that express themselves through the evil of people's hearts. There are people in need of Christ's grace. The only thing that has the power to transform a heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. But at least for me, I am typically so busy in my days and in my weeks that I have very little time left to consider, let alone engage the spiritual needs that exist among us apart from fleeting moments where I am reminded of the brokenness of the world. There's just too many things left for me to do to reflect upon the lostness of our city. 
I wonder if the same is true of you and your lives. Yet in another way, it can be functionally easy to deny the sinfulness of people and their need for a savior. I am often guilty of adopting one of the two errors that we spoke of earlier, of living as if sin isn't actually the threat that it is and can be discarded as an irrelevant or inconvenient belief, or of assuming that it doesn't really matter what someone believes because it will all work out in the end in light of God's love. And when I adopt one of these perspectives, it can be easy then to justify the failure to intercede on behalf of the people in our city the way that Abraham did. It can be easy to avoid spiritual realities in my interactions with other people because what if they don't share my worldview? What if I'm struggling in my life and I don't want to appear hypocritical? What if I don't know how to turn the conversation towards Christ and his love for sinners? And I suspect that this may also be the case with you. And in a final way, I can easily assume that someone else will pick up the slack for my inattention or inaction. There are so many churches and Christians scattered throughout DFW, which is such a grace. And so won't someone else step into the gap to intercede for people, to invite them to see and savor Jesus Christ and to work towards greater gospel proclamation for the millions here who do not yet know him? Is it really necessary for us to orient our, our life or shift our approach towards the lost? towards the outcry. What I sense the Lord doing as I have worked through this text and what I pray he is doing in you as well is to trouble you just a bit by the blindness, the apathy, and the passivity that may be present in your life that keeps you from considering these things. I do not say this to shame you, but to awaken us to the reality that just as with the expectation created by the intercession of Abraham, and as with the ultimate hope of Jesus, our Savior, who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, so too are there implications for us in our lives today as his disciples. And so you might ask, well, what do I do then? How do I apply these things that we've learned this morning? Four ways. First, we need to assess if any of these statements are true of us. Where is their spiritual blindness? Where might there be a functional denial of sin's effects or of inaction in your life as a believer? And how then might God be calling you to realign your heart so that it comes more into alignment with his and what God is doing in DFW and in our world for the sake of the gospel? So we need to assess. Second, we can pray. We can intercede. We can ask God to move in our city. And we can ask him for the power to have such a mindset as his ambassadors. You can do that wherever you are, 
throughout your day, throughout your week. But you can also do it here at two places that we've set up for just such a purpose. On Wednesday nights, we have a prayer room that's open from six to nine. And so if you're up here for a training class, perhaps you take some time before or after that class to pray. You heard us talk last week about 72, this three-day process of of signing up for spots to pray that's gonna happen on Holy Week. You can sign up for one of those. There are easy, immediate ways for us to begin doing this. There are opportunities not just to talk about the needs in our city, but to pray specifically that God would move in the hearts of men and women and through the ministry of gospel churches in Dallas for the sake of life change through Christ. Third, you've heard Shay mention this, you've heard me mention this, but specifically you can pray for us as a church and as leaders as we consider the future of church planting at Northway. We have a lot of people coming here, which is amazing. And while church planting is one way to alleviate some of the space constraints we've experienced the past few years, even more than that, church planting is God's way of reaching the lost in a city. More than any other means, a new church has the power to share the hope of Christ with greater effectiveness, addressing both the spiritual needs of a given location, but also serving as an intercessory witness to the gospel of Christ. So pray. Pray for us as we bring this desire to the Lord, but pray about what degree you would be involved. And whether God might be stirring something in you to such ends in your life. And then fourth and finally, for everyone, no matter where you are or what you do, we can work to slow down. Even if only in fits and starts, we can slow down. We are able to do something to address our pace of life so that we can be attuned to the spiritual realities around us. A hurried life is an unaware life. If we are too busy to see the spiritual needs before us, we can never expect to meaningfully engage their presence, whether through prayer or through our efforts at ministry. So as we work to incorporate these things, there's more but these are four to get us started, to align our hearts, assessing where that passivity or blindness may exist, to pray, to consider what God may be doing in terms of multiplication and to address our pace of life. As we do these things, we're modeling the intercessory heart of Abraham. We're acknowledging the righteousness of God and we're upholding the promise of the gospel. So let's pray to this end and ask the Lord to help us. Father in heaven, would you help us today to see the spiritual needs of our city? To see the brokenness that exists in people's hearts, but also the compassion of our savior for sinners. Would you help us to respond to whatever stirring there may be within us for deeper engagement in the work of gospel ministry? And would you help us to see your glory through it all? That in response to the question, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? You truly do what is right in all that you do. 
And your desire is for people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Help us to be a people who are able to respond with faith, with commitment, with dependence to these ends. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.